The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The sounds of baseball, not only the national pastime and a more than $10 billion industry, but also the only sport in the country that's exempt from the antitrust laws. And now some minor league teams are asking the Supreme Court to eliminate baseball's antitrust exemption. Why? As they put it in one brief, enough already. Joining me is antitrust expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Harry, tell us how baseball got this antitrust exemption. Well, this is one of the most reviled exemptions from (laughs) the point of view of antitrust lawyers, unless they represent baseball companies or teams or leagues, and even the courts don't like it. So it came about originally um, because of a decision in 1922 by the Supreme Court called Federal Baseball. And uh, this is an opinion written by Justice Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, distinguished jurist. And it was an effort to actually push out some competing leagues. And Holmes said that, uh, well, the antitrust laws don't cover this. Baseball is neither commerce nor interstate commerce. It's just sport, and it just takes place locally. So even though players even then traveled from state to state and there was a lot of money involved, perhaps Justice Holmes, as the Boston Brahmin, disdain baseball. You know, it's sort of like us now, raised with a certain kind of entertainment, reviewing video games. What is that? (laughs) And is there so much money involved? Are you serious? So maybe that was Holmes' reaction. I don't know. But in any event, that was a decision. Uh, Antitrust laws didn't apply. So that's 1922. The Supreme Court reaffirmed that decision in a case called Toulson in 1953 involving New York Yankees, if my memory is correct. And the court said, even though the decision was sort of dubious when made, it's now precedent. And all aspects of that decision had been undermined, even in the intervening period. The courts had a rather narrow conception of what constituted interstate commerce, perhaps, in 1922, but it had expanded clearly in the New Deal era, and antitrust cases had gone along, and there's no doubt that baseball should have been considered interstate commerce all along, and certainly a business. But the court said business of baseball is exempt from the antitrust laws from the Sherman Act. And then the the third case in this is a case called Flood against Kuhn. This involved Kurt Flood, who didn't want to be bound by what was called the Reserve Clause, which prevented players, once they were under contract, from going to some other team, even after the contract was over. 
And this was an opinion written by Justice Blackmun. This goes beyond sort of antitrust law. If you teach a course in law school about precedent and the need to follow precedent, you know, you would want to teach this opinion because it's a pay-on to baseball and the greats of baseball and how they flourished under this system. I mean, it was very clear that Harry Blackman was a great baseball fan and loved all these players. And now you come along, Kurt Flood, and you're going to challenge this system? <laughs> Give me a break. You know, everyone prospered. So on the basis of the doctrine of stare decisis, let the decision stand, the Supreme Court refused to overrule Toulson and federal baseball behind it, saying, no, we've had this exemption, this decision too long. No matter what we think of it legally, we're bound. Now, there's no one who will stand up for this, as I said, except people who represent baseball teams. Now, there is one final little bit of a change, which is Congress passed a law in 1998 called the Curt Flood Act, which took out of the exemption, put back into antitrust, any contracts involving the employment of Major League Baseball players at the Major League level. So just for Major League Baseball players like Curt Flood, that would now be subject to sort of the normal rules of antitrust and labor law for that matter. But these clauses aren't used anymore anyway. So it's sort of, in some sense, factually irrelevant, but maybe a little legal issue. Congress left everything else that this law doesn't apply to anything else involving baseball. So in effect, the exemption, which Congress never approved, very different from all other exemptions that we have, virtually all other exemptions, Congress never approved this one, the exemption continues. Does baseball operate like a monopoly, and is that unlike football or basketball or hockey? So we could argue whether football and hockey and all of those operate like monopolies. Separate argument, at least they are all subject to the antitrust laws. So all sports, professional, uh, the NCAA, you know, college sports, all sports have been subject to the antitrust laws in the court. Sport after sport will say, you know, baseball is its own thing. You're covered. So they are not free to violate the antitrust laws. Now, whether what they do is legal under the antitrust laws is another story. And your question is a really good one, because in the most recent Supreme Court case involving organized sports, which involved the NCAA, with NCAA against Alston, and the effort of the NCAA to suppress the amount of compensation to, quote, what they like to call student-athletes. And basically, they wanted to argue in the Supreme Court that you should really treat us differently. And the Supreme Court wrote, no, we're not treating you differently. You don't have any reason to. And Justice Gorsuch, for the majority, sort of dropped a little hint about this and mentioned that the Supreme Court in the past had dallied, this was his word, with what looks like an exemption for professional baseball. But we're not going to give it to you, folks. So you, NCAA, are fully subject to the antitrust laws, and um, your conduct is subject to the antitrust laws. So the court 
seem to have recognized, this is decided in 2021, again, that baseball is a bit of an aberration. In this case, you have minor league teams who are eliminated alleging a violation of the Sherman Act caused by a horizontal agreement between competitors that has artificially reduced and capped output in the market for MLB teams affiliated with MLB clubs. And a federal judge dismissed it because of the baseball exemption. Right. Federal Judge Andrew Carter said plaintiffs believe that the Supreme Court is poised to knock out the exemption like a boxer waiting to launch a left hook after her opponent tosses out a torpid jab. It's possible. So this would squarely present the baseball exemption to the Supreme Court. So that's correct. That's what's teeing up the interest at the moment. The case went to the Court of Appeals, which just sort of summarily agreed with the trial court great quote that you read there. And now the minor league teams who alleged a violation by being excluded from an agreement that the majors have made, which limit the number of minor league teams they can affiliate with, are now asking the Supreme Court to take the case. So it's not clear whether the court will actually take the case. The court has discretion as to whether to take it or not. So the first question is, will they take it? And presumably, if the court takes it, it means that they're interested in overruling the three cases that I mentioned. And the Supreme Court, you know, doesn't lightly overrule cases. Well, maybe I should take that I was going to say until recently. (laughs) Yeah. And the court has overruled, on occasion, longstanding antitrust precedent that parties had followed for many years, the case is called Legion, which involved the legality of setting resale prices. The Supreme Court overruled an older case, which had stood for 90 years, even longer than federal baseball. So it's possible the court would would take this case, but I would wait to see if the Justice Department expresses a desire to have the court take the case and overrule these other three cases. So I'm not certain whether the Justice Department will weigh in on this case. They did already in this particular case in the District Court and in the Court of Appeals, but they did not ask the court, which couldn't actually, to you know ignore the exemption. Do you think this exemption has lasted because baseball is seen as you know the national sport? <laughs> the exemption is a sport in itself. Uh, <laughs> You know, that's a very good question. So there's been a fair amount of litigation around this issue with litigants trying to narrow it, you know, to keep it very closely read as an exemption as they, you know, bring cases in lower courts that, you know, are forced to follow the three cases that I mentioned. So there has been an effort by parties to do something about it, not an effort by the government to do something about it as I think about it. You know, not that that's dispositive. So why has it lasted? Well, you know, part of it is the very basic theory of stare decisis, of following precedent. Courts are forced to do that, and the Supreme Court hasn't paid attention to this area that much, and for a while it wasn't paying much attention to antitrust. Now, that's sort of changed recently, so maybe now the court will have an appetite to to look at it. They've messed around with other sports, 
why not baseball? In 2022, the MLB commissioner wrote to the Senate Judiciary Committee, who was hearing this issue, that players could lose job opportunities and communities could lose minor league teams if baseball is stripped of its antitrust exemption. But let's say this does go to the Supreme Court. What kind of an argument could they make that they should still have an antitrust exemption? Yes, in a case in which communities are losing their their minor league teams. Exactly. Because without this affiliation, they don't have the financial support to continue. Well, they're not going to make that argument, I guess, in this case. <laughs> Presumably, they would they would pitch a lot of it on stability and expectations that parties have based their relationships over the years on operating collectively. Leagues need to operate collectively, and this would you know subject this sport to needless litigation, which might, in the end, result in massive costs and not produce better baseball. It's a hard argument to make when every other sport is subject to the antitrust laws. So I think when it gets to the Supreme Court, they'll have to look for things which explains for some reason why this sport should be sort of outside normal rules of competition law. And the court, once presented with that sort of actual argument, will often say, you know, hey, not our call, pardon baseball (laughs) joke. Not our call. Congress generally says, you know, that we like competition. And if you think that competition is not the way to go here, go to Congress. You've never done that. You've never gotten congressional approval for this. You know, lots of other industries have. So if you want to make your case, make it there. Don't make it here. The normal rule is competition, and we don't really like exemptions. So I think maybe in the end the question is going to be whether the Supreme Court thinks this is important enough to take or, you know, let's just sort of rock along this way. Certainly baseball is a big enough industry, and, you know, normally we like commercial relationships, particularly when lots of money is involved and lots of consumer interest, lots of labor interest, frankly, community interest. You know, normally we like that to be decided by marketplace. The best argument, I thought, was the minor league teams in a brief to the Second Circuit said, but the court should, if it sees fit, dispatch this case to the Supreme Court with a message attached, enough already. Well, you know, there's precedent for courts of appeals to do just that, to sort of say, look, our hands are tied. This is a terrible result, but our hands are tied, and sort of say, please take this. Now, the Second Circuit didn't quite do that, actually. I mean, they could have gone through the reasons, and there are opinions like this in other areas of antitrust, gone through the reasons for why this is so out of step. Commentators who have written about this, their books on this, uniformly condemned it, and, you know, why they say it would only help fans and everybody, except maybe the owners of these franchises, but owners of sports franchises seem to be doing pretty darn well, even when the antitrust laws apply. So they could have done more, but I'm actually waiting to see what the Justice Department says. I do think they need a sports case this term. Thanks so much, Harry. It's always a delight. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. Coming up next, we'll look at the charges against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Everything I've accomplished, I've worked for, despite the naysayers and everyone who has underestimated me. I recognize uh, this will be the biggest fight uh, yet, but as I have stated throughout this whole process, I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez told the public he was not guilty of bribery and corruption charges and entered a not guilty plea in court today. The Democratic senator has faced corruption charges before, his last trial ending with a deadlock jury in 2017. But this time it appears different, and his fellow Democratic senators are calling on him to resign, including New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, who said the indictment showed shocking allegations of corruption and specific disturbing details of wrongdoing. The office of the Manhattan U.S. attorney, Damian Williams, brought the charges. The indictment alleges that through that relationship, the senator and his wife accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes in exchange for Senator Menendez using his power and influence to protect and to enrich those businessmen and to benefit the government of Egypt. And there were pictures of some of the evidence seized from Menendez's home. The gold bars worth more than $100,000, nearly $500,000 in cash stuffed in envelopes and hidden in clothes and closets, and the Mercedes convertible. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. The allegations against Menendez were stunning to many people. So tell us about them. Well, he's charged in three counts of bribery. They basically used the same facts to charge it using three different statutes, kind of a belt and suspenders approach. But it's effectively that he did favors, official acts in his role as senator and as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee for these three businessmen who then paid him for those favors in cash and gold bars and a Mercedes convertible and some other stuff. The $100,000 in gold bars sort of stands out because who has gold bars? And add to that his Google search for how much is one kilo of gold worth. Do you think the prosecutors frame this in a way to bring out the dramatic in it? Well, you know, there's always a little bit of flair for the drama, I think. You know, jackets stuffed with cash, too, has a, a sort of flair that looks good in the photos, too. But you know, really, prosecutors have to prove three things. They have to prove that something of value was given, and that's the point of saying this cash was found, the gold bars, the car. Uh, they have to prove that official acts by the public official were promised uh, or given, and then they have to prove the quid pro quo, the connection between the two things. So, you know, prosecutors have to prove all three of those things, so they're going to be careful 
to make sure to do that. But I think, you know, they just took advantage of the fact that this is really a textbook bribery case. You so clearly have all three of those things, and it's just so obvious. I mean, who keeps that kind of cash around? Who keeps it in that way? You know, not in a safe, stuffed in jackets and things. So I, I just think it was so photogenic, I guess, if you will, just such a kind of textbook quintessential bribery case that it makes it easy to be a little bit dramatic with it. Tell me what you think of Menendez's explanation for the nearly $500,000 in cash he had in the house. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now, this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. Yeah, that's just silly. I mean, he's really just begging them to do what would be called an unexplained wealth analysis, right? Like, oh, really? That's all his legitimate money from his paychecks? All right, well, let's look at what his paychecks are and what other means he has. I mean, is he independently wealthy? Does he have major investments that he converted to cash? You know, what is the explanation for having that kind of cash in the first place when you look at his bank accounts and how much money he makes being a senator, and I don't think it's going to stack up. So I doubt that that defense, while he kind of offered it in the first instance, is going to make its way into the trial. I think that they'll have to focus on other things if they end up actually taking us to trial. So what struck me, and you know, maybe this happens more often than I know, but how often do the feds test money for fingerprints and DNA especially? Yeah, not very often. Yeah, I understand that there was some DNA found, on I think, on an envelope that some of the money was in. You know, it's not a great conductor of fingerprints. You know, metal and other surfaces are much better. Uh, but you really do want to try, if you can, to establish the connection between the bribes and the people who were giving the bribes. So in this case, it makes sense to test if you think you can get something like fingerprints. And it worked. They were able to establish a link between that particular bunch of money and one of the businessmen who was one of the bribers and and co-defendants. So it worked for them. Is the toughest part of this case for the prosecution to prove the quid pro quo? I think actually in this case, I mean, that often is the toughest. I think in this case, because they have such a wealth of evidence with the text that they recovered that they, I think, did a, a wiretap on that really sets out the scheme and the back and forth. So I think the most challenging thing in this case is actually proving the official acts that the things that Menendez did and promised to do for the bribers, his co-defendants, were actually technically official acts because over the years, the last 10 or so years, the Supreme Court really has narrowed what that means to be an official act. And we don't yet exactly know the outside contours of that because, you know, every time you litigate one of these cases and the Supreme Court speaks on it, then you kind of know on that particular set of facts. So, you know, whether or not every single thing that Menendez did and agreed to do will be ultimately deemed an official act under the Supreme Court's version of that is undetermined. I still think they have a strong case. I think many of the actions are clearly official acts, but that's where it gets a little bit muddy on the edges about what they can try to challenge. So he's also accused of giving Egyptian officials highly sensitive information. Is that part of the charges, or is that just background? 
So that's a really interesting piece of this. They did not charge him with being a foreign agent or anything that would require them to prove that he basically was acting in Egypt's interest against the U.S.'s interest. It is a piece of evidence in the bribery case because it's one of the things that he did for them, right? One of the things that he gave them was this information, and they bribed him for it. They gave him money or, you know, whatever the case may be in that particular instance. They gave him a bribe for that information. So it does come in. It's part of the bribery case, but it's not charged separately uh, in terms of like a foreign agent charge or anything like that. And I think prosecutors were very smart about that because charging that kind of case uh, leads to all sorts of complications with classified information, makes discovery more complicated, makes the trial more complicated. They charged it just lean and mean, just the bribery, very strong unclassified, easy to do discovery, easy to do the trial if it comes to that. So I think that was a wise strategic decision. Do you think the Justice Department learned from the last trial and didn't want the same thing to happen twice? Well, it's a different group of prosecutors. This prosecution is out of the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office. The other one was out of Maine Justice. So it's, it's not the same people. But sure, every time you see a case falter, you learn from that experience. And, you know, the thing is here is really just a completely separate set of facts. You know, last time the charges involved someone allegedly bribing Menendez, who was a close personal friend. And ultimately, I think the jurors couldn't figure out whether the official acts done were because of the bribes or because of the friendship. Here, there's no relationship like that. This was purely transactional. It's all laid out there in the text. So they don't have the same challenges. But yeah, I mean, anytime you you have a loss, hopefully you learn something from it. Why is a Manhattan U.S. attorney bringing this? And how much of a disadvantage is that for Menendez not having a sort of a home court advantage? Well, I don't exactly know. I mean, it would depend in part on which FBI office started the investigation, you know, what they learned first that kind of triggered the case for them, triggered the investigation. You know, sometimes there are multiple offices involved, and then the Department of Justice, Maine Justice, will decide who gets it. So it's hard to know. You know, they obviously will have to have some ties to Manhattan or else they wouldn't have venue. But it's not exactly clear. And I mean, I think he probably would prefer to be in New Jersey because, you know, those are his constituents. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody knows Bob Menendez. I don't know that he would get a better jury in New Jersey than he'll get in Manhattan. It's still, if you want to think about it politically, it's still a very blue area, I guess. If he's a Democratic senator, you may think that that helps him. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure why it ended up there, but um, listen, that's my old shop, and so I'm biased, but I think they're the best prosecutors anywhere. So I think it's a, a good thing that it did. Coming up next, I'll continue this conversation with Jennifer Rogers, and we'll talk about what possible defenses Menendez may have. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. 
I've been talking to former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers about the federal charges against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez. Jennifer, just explain in a little more depth what happened during that 2017 trial. Yeah, so there were a few things that happened. You know, first of all, as I said, there's been this kind of 10-year period where the Supreme Court has been changing the law effectively in these public corruption cases. And so prosecutors really have been at a disadvantage in terms of figuring out what to charge, how to charge, how to ask for jury instructions, and then crossing their fingers that it wouldn't get all undone by the next public corruption case that went up to the Supreme Court. So, so some of that is kind of the uncertainty. But they charged two kinds of bribes in that case. And this basically is the relationship between Senator Menendez and his close personal friend, an ophthalmologist from Florida, Dr. Melgan. And, you know, they charged two kinds of bribes. They charged campaign donations. And the challenge with campaign donations, if you charge them and they're reported properly and so on, is you have to prove an explicit quid pro quo, explicit, like I'm giving you these campaign donations in exchange for the following official acts, right, which is virtually impossible to actually get. Uh, So they had trouble with that one. They didn't have that proof at trial. And then they charged a set of bribes that were in the form of trips, basically, trips where Dr. Melgan and Senator Menendez went together on the private jet to the fancy homes, sometimes overseas, et cetera. And uh, those are deemed gifts to Menendez, right? He didn't pay his friend Dr. Melgan back for the expenses associated with those trips. But the problem with that theory is that I think a lot of the jurors thought, well, how do we know that that's not because of the friendship? I mean, if you had a really wealthy friend, maybe that friend would spring for you to go on vacation with him or her, right? So they had trouble saying that the things that Senator Menendez did for Dr. Melgan, and there were things. I mean, he did definitely try to influence certain official actions on behalf of Dr. Melgan. Like, that side of the case was okay. But the question is, were the bribes actually in exchange for those benefits? And that's where that case had trouble. Can you see a defense that Menendez could raise? The case is very strong, I think, on all fronts. The most likely place where they have a little bit of wiggle room some arguments to make is the official act piece of it, because it's not entirely clear the outside limits of what an official act can be. We know from the Supreme Court's case, the McDonald case about the former Virginia governor, that it has to be something governmental, right? Not just that you do because you're a senator, for example, but that really goes to kind of a typical government function. So passing a piece of legislation holding up a piece of legislation, doing an investigation in Congress. Like, those are the sorts of things that would definitely be deemed to be an official act. But it's not 100% clear that other things, so just using your influence, would necessarily clear that bar. So they've charged him with, or they've mentioned in the indictment, that he tried to influence prosecutors in New Jersey about cases that his co-defendants were interested in. They said he tried to influence an official at the U.S. Department of Agriculture to help these co-defendants in a business that they wanted. Those sorts of things are a little bit on the line. So, you know, I think they could be deemed to be official acts, but it's not 100 percent clear. So if I'm Menendez's lawyers, that's where I'm probably going to be looking and seeing if there are arguments to make there for, you know, those things may be distasteful, but are they technically official acts as far as the statute goes? That's what I'd be looking for. Do you think prosecutors are going to try to flip some of the other defendants, not his wife, but the others? 
Um, they might. They, I, I assume, would at least be open to talking to those lawyers and those defendants about that issue. I mean, you know, they have so many communications. They have all these text messages. And so I don't know that they need a cooperator in the way that you often really want one in a case like this. That said, prosecutors, in my experience, are always willing to listen to a defendant who wants to come forward and say, here's why. I deserve a cooperation agreement, so I think they'll probably listen to them. And listen, if they can provide evidence that they don't already have that will help them with their case, they probably would sign one of them up or two of them up, depending on you know what the facts are. Would all the defendants be tried together, or do you think Menendez might be able to get his trial severed? I think they'll all be tried together. I mean, usually to conserve resources, they try to keep cases like this together. The only real reason he would have to try to sever it is if there are uh, defenses that conflict with each other. Um, You know, if there's no fair way to try them together because they're pointing the finger at each other in an antagonistic way, um, you know, that's where you would see uh, a problem with something like that. But, you know, we'll have to see how it develops. I think there's a, you know, there's a presumption for keeping cases like this together because obviously to try it twice, you know, not to mention five times with five defendants would be just too much of a burden on the system. So this is a a bit of an opinion question, but it seems like Senate Democrats have already tried and convicted him just based on the allegations in the complaint. I'm wondering if you think that's because the allegations are so striking or just because it's politics. You know, it's hard to know what they're all thinking as far as the political side. I will say there might be a bit of fatigue with Senator Menendez because we have been through this before. Um, And even though he ended up with a hung jury and not being convicted, you know, there were clear ethical violations there, the the Senate found. So, um, you know, here we go again, right on the heels of uh, the determination that he wouldn't be retried on that case. He's, you know, meeting up with these people and starting a similar scheme all over again. I also think that the nature of the evidence, as explained in the indictment, is pretty black and white. It's not as if they say, you know, in the indictment, we have a cooperating witness, CW1, and the witness says X, Y, and Z, and you can think, well, maybe the witness is lying, maybe it's credibility problems. You know, they have these communications. They are what they are, black and white. There will be transcripts. So, you know, I think those things together probably suggest to these politicians that there's not a lot of Uh, opportunity to to wiggle out of this. And, you know, we'll see when the discovery gets turned over, which should be pretty soon, whether Menendez comes off of his claim that he won't resign and, you know, is going to surge forward. I think once he actually confirms that what is in the indictment is accurate, he's probably going to be talking to his lawyers about how to try to mitigate this and and look for some sort of plea deal to a lesser offense or something like that. You think that's possible, that the prosecutors would agree to a lesser offense? Sure, sure. I mean, the the trick in a case like this is finding one, honestly, Mm -hmm. um, because all three of these offenses that they've charged are really just different ways to charge bribery, and the sentencing guidelines are going to be the same for all of them. So the trick would be trying to find something with with a lesser guidelines range. Um, But yeah, prosecutors are always looking to save resources by pleading things out, and You know, when you have a case, a public corruption case, with a corrupt politician who is still in office, 
prosecutors have an interest in getting that person out of office. So if he comes in and says, you know, listen, I'd like to take a plea, they're like, great, that, you know, wraps up our case. We don't have to do a long period of pretrial and then go to trial. And if it includes a deal that he'll resign, all the better. You know, he's, he's out sooner than he would otherwise be. So I'm sure prosecutors would be willing to think about that. The question is, you know, what can they find that would be agreeable to both sides for him to plead to? Do you think that any deal would have to include jail time? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where prosecutors would come out on that. You know, on the one hand, he's on the older side. You know, is he, I was going to say, is he a recidivist? I guess actually he is a recidivist because we had the other case and then this one on the heels of it. But if he's removed from office, you know, the opportunity for this sort of thing will be obviously significantly lessened. Um, So I'm not sure whether they would insist on something with jail time. I mean, prosecutors never get to decide the sentence anyway, even if you agree on a range, it's ultimately up to the judge. So, you know, I certainly could see them picking a range that is low enough that a judge might decide, you know, ultimately to just give probation. But they know the case much better, obviously, um, than we all do from the outside. So, yeah, I'm not sure how they would view the conduct and, and decide, you know, what they think is the appropriate sentence. What's interesting is several people told Politico that after Friday's indictment, Menendez seemed emboldened almost. And I saw he was being questioned by reporters yesterday as he was running through the Senate halls. And he said, because I'm innocent, what's wrong with you guys? But maybe when he sees the evidence. Yeah, I mean, he may just his knee jerk reaction may have been, you know, I beat you before I can beat you again. Forget about it. Um, But, you know, in the cold, sober light of day, when they have the evidence, when he's sitting down with his lawyers, and when they explain to him the differences between this case and the prior case, you know, I suspect he he won't have so much uh, bravado, at least in private, you know, who knows what he'll continue to maintain in public. He's kind of on the ropes politically, right, with all of these colleagues of of his calling for his resignation. So uh, maybe he feels like that's the face he has to put on to to fight that battle in this moment. But, you know, behind the scenes, I'm sure he'll uh, be more thoughtful about this case. It's always great to have you on, Jennifer, and to get your insights. That's former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.